I prayed a lot. I can almost see the cynics rolling their eyes, but pray I did, as fervently as I can remember ever doing. Novelist Anne Lamott once wrote that the three essential prayers she knows are help, thanks, wow. You can guess which one I reached for last fall. I prayed for help to put the sadness and disappointment of my defeat behind me, to stay hopeful and open-hearted rather than becoming cynical and bitter, and to find a new purpose and start a new chapter so that the rest of my life wouldn't be spent like Miss Havisham from Charles Dickens's Great Expectations, rattling around my house, obsessing over what might have been. I prayed that my worst fears about Donald Trump wouldn't be realized and that people's lives and America's future would be made better, not worse, during his presidency. I'm still praying on that one, and I can use all the backup you can muster. I also prayed for wisdom. I had help from Bill Shalady, the United Methodist minister who co-officiated at Chelsea and Mark's marriage and led the memorial service for my mother. During the campaign, he sent me devotionals every day. On November 9th, he sent me a commentary that originally appeared in a blog by Pastor Matt Duell. I read it many times before the week was out. This passage in particular really moved me. It is Friday, but Sunday is coming. This is not the devotional I had hoped to write. This is not the devotional you wish to receive this day. While Good Friday may be the starkest representation of a Friday that we have, life is filled with a lot of Fridays. For the disciples and Christ's followers in the first century, Good Friday represented the day that everything fell apart. All was lost. And even though Jesus told his followers that three days later the temple would be restored, they betrayed, denied, mourned, fled, and hid. They did just about everything but feel good about Friday and their circumstances. You are experiencing a Friday, but Sunday is coming. Death will be shattered, hope will be restored, but first we must live through the darkness and seeming hopelessness of Friday. I called Reverend Bill, and we talked for a long time. I reread one of my favorite books, The Return of the Prodigal Son, by the Dutch priest Henry Nouwen. It's something I've gone back to repeatedly during difficult times in my life. You may know the parable about the younger of two sons who strays and sins but finally comes home. He's welcomed lovingly by his father, but resented by his older brother, who had stayed behind and served his father honorably while the younger brother did whatever he wanted. Maybe it's because I'm the oldest in our family and something of a Girl Scout, but I've always identified with the older brother in the parable. How grating it must have been to see his wayward sibling welcomed back as if nothing had happened. It must have felt as if all his years of hard work and dutiful care meant nothing at all. But the father says to the older brother, Have I not taken good care of you? Have you not been close to me? Have you not been at my side, learning and working? Those things are their own reward. It's a story about unconditional love, the love of a father and also the father. 
who is always ready to love us no matter how often we stumble and fall. It makes me think of my dad, a flinty, tight-lipped man who nevertheless always made sure I knew what I meant to him. I won't always like what you do, he'd tell me, but I will always love you. As a kid, I would come up with elaborate hypotheses to test him. What if I robbed a store or murdered somebody? Would you still love me then? He'd say, absolutely. I'd be disappointed and sad, but I will always love you. Once or twice last November, I thought to myself, well, Dad, what if I lose an election I should have won and let an unqualified bully become president of the United States? Would you still love me then? Unconditional love is the greatest gift he gave me, and I've tried to give it to Chelsea and now to Charlotte and Aiden. Now one sees another lesson in the parable of the prodigal son, a lesson about gratitude. I can choose to be grateful even when my emotions and feelings are still steeped in hurt and resentment, he writes. I can choose to speak about goodness and beauty even when my inner eye still looks for someone to accuse or something to call ugly. I can choose to listen to the voices that forgive and to look at the faces that smile, even while I still hear words of revenge and see grimaces of hatred. It's up to us to make the choice to be grateful, even when things aren't going well. Now one calls that the discipline of gratitude. To me, it means not just being grateful for the good things, because that's easy, but also to be grateful for the hard things, too. To be grateful even for our flaws, because in the end, they make us stronger by giving us a chance to reach beyond our grasp. My task was to be grateful for the humbling experience of losing the presidential election. Humility can be such a painful virtue. In the Bible, St. Paul reminds us that we all see through a glass darkly because of our humbling limitations. That's why faith, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen, requires a leap. It's because of our limitations and imperfections that we must reach out beyond ourselves to God and to one another. As the days went by, November turned into December, and that horrible, no good, very bad time came to a close. I began to rediscover my gratitude. I felt the good effects of all that walking and sleep. I was getting calmer and stronger. I found myself thinking of new projects I'd like to take on. I started accepting invitations to events that spoke to my heart, a Planned Parenthood dinner, the Women in the World Summit and the Vital Voices Gala, celebrating women leaders and activists from around the world, and gatherings with students at Harvard, Wellesley, and Georgetown. Those rooms were full of purposeful energy. I soaked it all up and found myself thinking more about the future than the past. Do what you feel in your heart to be right, for you'll be criticized anyway. You'll be damned if you do and damned if you don't. Eleanor Roosevelt Competition For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. T.S. Eliot Get Caught Trying 
I ran for president because I thought I'd be good at the job. I thought that of all the people who might run, I had the most relevant experience, meaningful accomplishments, and ambitious but achievable proposals, as well as the temperament to get things done in Washington. America was doing better than any other major country, but there was still too much inequality and too little economic growth. Our diversity was an advantage, spurring creativity and vitality, but rapid social and economic change alienated people who thought too much was happening too fast and felt left out. Our position in the world was strong, but we had to cope with a combustible mix of terrorism, globalization, and the advances in technology that fueled them both. I believed that my experiences in the White House, Senate, and State Department equipped me to take on these challenges. I was prepared as anyone could be. I had ideas that would make our country stronger and life better for millions of Americans. In short, I thought I'd be a damn good president. Still, I never stopped getting asked, why do you want to be president? Why? But really, why? The implication was that there must be something else going on, some dark ambition and craving for power. Nobody psychoanalyzed Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, or Bernie Sanders about why they ran. It was just accepted as normal. But for me... It was regarded as inevitable, people assumed I'd run no matter what, yet somehow abnormal, demanding a profound explanation. After the election, I thought a lot about this. Maybe it's because I'm a woman and we're not used to women running for president. Maybe it's because my style of leadership didn't fit the times. Maybe it's because I never explained myself as bluntly as this. So let me start from the beginning and tell you how and why I made the decision to run. You might lose, Bill told me. I know, I said. I might lose. The problem started with history. It was exceedingly difficult for either party to hold on to the White House for more than eight years in a row. In the modern era, it had happened only once when George H.W. Bush succeeded Ronald Reagan in 1989. No non-incumbent Democrat had run successfully to succeed another two-termer since Vice President Martin Van Buren won in 1836, succeeding Andrew Jackson. There was still a lot of pent-up anger and resentment left over from the financial crash of 2008-2009, and while that had happened on the Republicans' watch, Democrats had presided over a recovery that had been too slow. There was also Clinton fatigue to consider. Pundits were already complaining that the election would be an exhausting contest between two familiar dynasties, the Clintons and the Bushes. Then there was the matter of my gender. No woman had ever won the nomination of a major party in the history of our country, let alone the presidency. It's easy to lose sight of how momentous that is, but when you stop to consider what it means and the possible reasons behind it, it's profoundly sobering. 
It was a chilly day in autumn 2014, and Bill and I had been having the same conversation for months now. Should I run for president for a second time? Lots of talented people were ready to jump on board with my campaign if I ran. The press and most of the political class assumed I was already running. Some of them were so convinced by the caricature of me as a power-hungry woman that they couldn't imagine me doing anything else. I, on the other hand, could imagine lots of different paths for myself. I already knew how it felt to lose. Until you experience it, it's hard to comprehend the ache in your gut when you see things going wrong and can't figure out how to fix them, the sharp blow when the results finally come in, the disappointment written on the faces of your friends and supporters. Political campaigns are massive enterprises with thousands of people working together toward a common goal. But in the end, it's intensely personal, even a bit lonely. It's just your name on the ballot. You're embraced or repudiated all by yourself. The race against Barack Obama in 2008 was close and hard fought. By the end, he led in the all-important delegate count. But our popular vote totals were less than one-tenth of one percent apart. That made it all the more painful to accept defeat and muster up the good cheer to campaign vigorously for him. The saving grace was the respect I had for Barack and my belief that he would be a good president who would do everything he could to advance the values we both shared. That made it a lot easier. Did I want to put myself through a grueling race all over again? My life after leaving politics had turned out to be pretty great. I had joined Bill and Chelsea as a new board member of the Clinton Foundation, which Bill had turned into a major global philanthropy after leaving office. This allowed me to pursue my own passions and have an impact without all the bureaucracy and petty squabbles of Washington. I admired what Bill had built and I loved that Chelsea had decided to bring her knowledge of public health and her private sector experience to the foundation to improve its management, transparency, and performance after a period of rapid growth. At the 2002 International AIDS Conference in Barcelona, Bill had a conversation with Nelson Mandela about the urgent need to lower the price of HIV-AIDS drugs in Africa and across the world. Bill figured he was well-positioned to help, so he began negotiating agreements with drug makers and governments to lower medicine prices dramatically and to raise the money to pay for it. It worked. More than 11.5 million people in more than 70 countries now have access to cheaper HIV-AIDS treatment. Right now, out of everyone being kept alive by these drugs in developing countries around the world, more than half the adults and 75% of the children are benefiting from the Clinton Foundation's work. After recovering from heart bypass surgery in 2004, Bill joined with the American Heart Association to start the Alliance for a Healthier Generation, which has helped more than 20 million students in more than 35,000 American schools enjoy healthier food and more physical activity. The Alliance made agreements with major beverage companies to reduce calories in drinks available in schools by 90 percent, and also partnered with Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative. The Foundation is also fighting the opioid epidemic in the United States, 
helping more than 150,000 small farmers in Africa increase their incomes and bringing clean energy to island nations in the Caribbean and Pacific. In 2005, Bill started the Clinton Global Initiative, a new model of philanthropy for the 21st century that brought together leaders from business, government, and the nonprofit sector to make concrete commitments for action on everything from distributing clean water to improving energy efficiency to providing hearing aids to deaf children. The annual conferences highlighted the most exciting commitments and their results. No one could just show up and talk. You had to actually do something. After 12 years, CGI members and their affiliates in CGI America and CGI International had made more than 3,600 commitments, which have improved the lives of more than 435 million people in more than 180 countries. Among CGI's greatest hits were sending 500 tons of medical supplies and equipment to West Africa for those fighting the Ebola epidemic and helping raise $500 million to support small businesses, farms, schools, and health care in Haiti. In the United States, at no expense to taxpayers, CGI helped launch an amazing partnership led by the Carnegie Corporation of New York to meet President Obama's goal of 100,000 new STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics teachers, and it supported the creation of America's largest private infrastructure fund, $16.5 billion invested by public employee pension funds led by the American Federation of Teachers, AFT, and North America's Building Trades Unions, NAB2, which has created 100,000 jobs and provided skills training to a quarter million workers every year. When I joined the foundation in 2013, I teamed up with Melinda Gates and the Gates Foundation to launch an initiative called No Ceilings, the Full Participation Project to Advance Rights and Opportunities for Women and Girls Around the World. I also created a program called Too Small to Fail to encourage reading, talking, and singing to infants and toddlers to help their brains develop and build vocabulary. And Chelsea and I started a network of leading wildlife conservation organizations to protect the endangered African elephants from poachers. None of these programs had to poll well or fit on a bumper sticker. They just had to make a positive, measurable difference in the world. After years in the political trenches, that was both refreshing and rewarding. I knew from experience that if I ran for president again, everything Bill and I had ever touched would be subject to scrutiny and attack, including the foundation. That was a concern, but I never imagined that this widely respected global charity would be as savagely smeared and attacked as it was. For years, the foundation and CGI had been supported by Republicans and Democrats alike. Independent Philanthropy Watchdogs, Charity Watch, Guide Star, and Charity Navigator gave the Clinton Foundation top marks for reducing overhead and having a measurable, positive impact. Charity Watch gave it an A. Charity Navigator gave it four stars. And Guide Star rated it platinum. But none of that stopped brutal partisan attacks from raining down during the campaign. I have written about the foundation at some length because a recent analysis published in the Columbia Journalism Review 
showed that during the campaign, there was twice as much written about the Clinton Foundation as there was on any of the Trump scandals, and nearly all of it was negative. That gets to me. As Daniel Borokov, the founder of Charity Watch, put it, if Hillary Clinton wasn't running for president, the Clinton Foundation would be seen as one of the great humanitarian charities of our generation. I believe that's exactly what it is and what it will continue to be, and I was proud to be a part of it. Beyond my work with the Foundation, I also spent time in 2013 and 2014 writing a book called Hard Choices about my experiences as Secretary of State. The book was long, more than 600 pages about foreign policy, but I still had more stories left on the cutting room floor and a lot more things I wanted to say. If I didn't run for president, there could be more books to write. Maybe I could teach and spend time with students. What's more, like many former government officials, I found that organizations and companies wanted me to come talk to them about my experiences and share my thoughts on the world, and they'd pay me a pretty penny to do it. I continued giving many speeches without pay, but I liked that there was a way for me to earn a very good living without working for any one company or sitting on any boards. It was also a chance to meet interesting people. I spoke to audiences from a wide range of fields, travel agents and auto dealers, doctors and tech entrepreneurs, grocers and summer camp counselors. I also spoke to bankers. Usually, I told stories from my time as Secretary of State and answered questions about global hotspots. I must have recounted the behind-the-scenes story of the raid that brought Osama bin Laden to justice at least a hundred times. Sometimes I talked about the importance of creating more opportunities for women, both around the world and in corporate America. I rarely got partisan. What I had to say was interesting to my audiences, but it wasn't especially newsworthy. Many of the organizations wanted the speeches to be private, and I respected that. They were paying for a unique experience. That allowed me to be candid about my impressions of world leaders, who might have been offended if they'd heard. I'm talking about you, Vladimir. Later, my opponents spun wild tales about what terrible things I must have said behind closed doors and how as president I would be forever in the pocket of the shadowy bankers who had paid my speaking fees. I should have seen that coming. Given my record of independence in the Senate, especially my early warnings about the mortgage crisis, my votes against the Bush tax cuts, and my positions in favor of financial regulation, including closing the tax loophole for hedge funds known as carried interest, this didn't seem to be a credible attack. I didn't think many Americans would believe that I'd sell a lifetime of principle and advocacy for any price. When you know why you're doing something and you know there's nothing more to it and certainly nothing sinister, it's easy to assume that others will see it the same way. That was a mistake. Just because many former government officials have been paid large fees to give speeches, I shouldn't have assumed it would be okay for me to do it, especially after the financial crisis of 2008-2009. I should have realized it would be bad optics and stayed away from anything having to do with Wall Street. I didn't. That's on me. This is one of the mistakes I made that you'll hear about in this book. I've tried to give an honest accounting of when I got it wrong, where I fell short, and what I wish I could go back and do differently. 
This isn't easy or fun. My mistakes burn me up inside. But as one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver, says, while our mistakes make us want to cry, the world doesn't need more of that. The truth is, everyone's flawed. That's the nature of human beings. But our mistakes alone shouldn't define us. We should be judged by the totality of our work and life. Many problems don't have either-or answers, and a good decision today may not look as good 10 or 20 years later through the lens of new conditions. When you're in politics, this gets more complicated. We all want, and the political press demands, a storyline, which tends to cast people as either saints or sinners. You're either revered or reviled, and there's no juicier political story than the saint who gets unmasked as a sinner. A two-dimensional cartoon is easier to digest than a fully formed person. For a candidate, a leader, or anyone really, the question is not, are you flawed? It's what do you do about your flaws? Do you learn from your mistakes so you can do and be better in the future? Or do you reject the hard work of self-improvement and instead tear others down so you can assert they're as bad or worse than you are? I've always tried to do the former, and by and large, so has our country, with our long march toward a more perfect union. But Donald Trump does the latter. Instead of admitting mistakes, he lashes out, demeans, and insults others, often projecting by accusing others of doing what he himself has done or is about to do. So if he knows that the Donald J. Trump Foundation is little more than a personal piggy bank, he'll turn around and accuse, with no evidence, the well-respected Clinton Foundation of being corrupt. There's a method to this madness. For Trump, if everyone's down in the mud with him— then he's no dirtier than anyone else. He doesn't have to do better if everyone else does worse. I think that's why he seems to relish humiliating people around him. And it's why he must have been delighted when Marco Rubio tried to match him in slinging crude personal insults during the primaries. Of course, it hurt Rubio much more than Trump. As Bill likes to say, never wrestle a pig in the mud. They have cloven hooves, which give them superior traction, and they love getting dirty. Sadly, Trump's strategy works. When people start believing that all politicians are liars and crooks, the truly corrupt escape scrutiny and cynicism grows. But I'm getting ahead of myself, back to 2014 and deciding to run for president. We've talked about my work at the foundation, my book, and my speeches, but by far the best part about my life after government, and probably the most compelling reason not to run, was being a grandmother. I loved it even more than I'd expected. Bill and I found ourselves looking for any excuse to drive down to Manhattan so we could drop by Chelsea and Marks and see little Charlotte, who was born that September. We became the world's most enthusiastic babysitters, book readers, and playmates. We were doubly blessed when Aiden arrived in June 2016. Running for president again would mean putting all this, my wonderful new life, on hold and climbing back on the high wire of national politics. I wasn't sure I was ready to do that. My family was incredibly supportive. If I wanted to run, they would be there for me 100%. 
Chelsea had campaigned relentlessly in 2008, becoming a superb surrogate and sounding board for me. Bill knows more than almost anyone alive about what it takes to be president. He was convinced I was the best person for the job and strenuously denied that this was just a husband's love talking. Still, the obstacles were daunting. Yes, I had left the State Department with some of the highest approval ratings of anyone in public life. One poll from the Wall Street Journal and NBC News in January 2013 put me at 69%. I was also the most admired woman in the world, according to the annual Gallup poll. Ah, the good old days. But I knew that my high approval rating was partly because Republicans had been willing to work with me when I was secretary and praised my service. They had trained their fire on President Obama and largely left me alone. Also, the press corps covering me in those years genuinely cared about the work of diplomacy and the issues I dealt with, which meant the news coverage of my work was substantive and, for the most part, accurate. I knew it would be different if I ran for president again, and as Bill said, and history supported, the country's perennial desire for change would make it hard for any Democrat to win, especially one like me who was closely tied to the current administration. In 2014, President Obama's approval rating was stuck in the low 40s. Despite the administration's best efforts, the economic recovery was still anemic, with wages and real incomes stagnating for most Americans. The administration had botched the rollout of the new health care marketplaces, a centerpiece of the president's signature legislative accomplishment, the Affordable Care Act. A new terrorist group, ISIS, was seizing territory in Iraq and Syria and beheading civilians live on the Internet. There was even a terrifying Ebola epidemic in Africa that many Americans worried would jump to the United States. Thankfully, the Obama administration reacted swiftly to shore up our public health defenses and support Ebola response efforts in West Africa. Despite the facts, conservative partisans warned breathlessly and with zero evidence that ISIS terrorists would sneak across our southern border and bring Ebola with them. It was a right-wing conspiracy theory trifecta. In the run-up to the 2014 midterms, Bill and I both campaigned hard across the country for endangered Democratic incumbents and competitive challengers. Late at night, we'd compare notes about the anger, resentment, and cynicism we were seeing and the vicious Republican attacks fueling it. For years, GOP leaders had stoked the public's fears and disappointments. They were willing to sabotage the government in order to block President Obama's agenda. For them, dysfunction wasn't a bug, it was a feature. They knew that the worse Washington looked, the more voters would reject the idea that government could ever be an effective force for progress. They could stop most good things from happening and then be rewarded because nothing good was happening. When something good did happen, such as expanding health care, they would focus on tearing it down rather than making it better. With many of their voters getting their news from partisan sources, they had found a way to be consistently rewarded for creating the gridlock voters say they hate. The success of this strategy was becoming evident. 
In 2014, in Georgia and North Carolina, I campaigned for two smart, talented, independent-minded candidates who should have had a good chance to win, Michelle Nunn and Senator Kay Hagan. Both races were tight up until the end. But days before the election, a savvy Georgia political observer confided to me that he'd seen private polling that showed Nunn and other Democrats cratering. Republicans were using fears about ISIS and Ebola to scare people and raise questions about whether a Democrat, especially a woman, could really be tough enough on national security. In several states, Republicans ran an ad mixing images of Ebola responders in hazmat suits with photos of President Obama playing golf. It's ironic to remember that now with Donald Trump spending about 20% of his new presidency at his own luxury golf clubs. I sometimes wonder, if you add together his time spent on golf, Twitter, and cable news, what's left? Bill told me about a particularly troubling conversation he had with an old friend who lived up in the Ozarks of northern Arkansas. He had become an endangered species in Arkansas, a still-loyal, progressive Democrat. Bill called and asked our friend if he thought two-term Senator Mark Pryor could be reelected. Mark was a moderate Democrat with a golden name. His father, David, was an Arkansas legend, having served as congressman, governor, and senator. Mark had voted for Obamacare because he believed everyone deserved the high-quality health care he received when he suffered from cancer as a young man. Our friend said he didn't know, and he and Bill agreed. The best way to find out was to visit a certain country store deep in the Ozarks, where a couple hundred people regularly came out of the woods to buy food and talk politics. When our friend got back, he called Bill and told him what the store owner had said. You know, I always supported Clinton, and I like Mark Pryor a lot. He's a good man and fair to everyone but we're going to give Congress to the Republicans. The store owner was no fool. He knew the Republicans wouldn't do anything for him and his neighbors, but he thought the Democrats hadn't done anything either. And at least the Republicans won't do anything to us, he said. The Democrats want to take away my gun and make me go to a gay wedding. Sure enough, Mark lost big on Election Day to Tom Cotton, one of the most right-wing members of Congress. It wasn't that voters were turning away from the policies Mark and other Democrats had championed. In fact, in the same election, they passed an increase in the state's minimum wage. But the politics of cultural identity and resentment were overwhelming evidence, reason, and personal experience. It seemed like Brexit had come to America even before the vote in the United Kingdom, and it didn't bode well for 2016. Our party might have won the popular vote in five of the past six presidential elections, but the political landscape for the 2016 race was shaping up to be extremely challenging. As if all this wasn't enough to worry about, there was also the simple, inescapable fact that I was turning 68 years old. If I ran and won, I would be the oldest president since Reagan. I suspected there'd be waves of rumor-mongering about my health and everything else in my life. It would be invasive, crass, and insidious. 
But contrary to persistent rumors made up and spread by the right-wing media, my health was excellent. I had recovered fully from the concussion I suffered in late 2012, and the whole world could see I had no trouble keeping up a punishing travel schedule. I admired the likes of Diana Nyad, who at the age of 64 became the first person to swim from Cuba to Florida without a shark cage. When she finally emerged back on dry land, she offered three pieces of advice. Never, ever give up. You're never too old to chase your dreams. And even if something looks like a solitary sport, it's a team effort. Words to live by. Still, is this how I wanted to spend my time? Did I really want to put myself back in front of the firing squad of national politics for years on end, first in the campaign and then hopefully in the White House? Some of my dearest friends, including my longtime advisors and former chiefs of staff in the White House and the State Department, Maggie Williams and Cheryl Mills, told me I would be crazy to do it. Plenty of other people in my position had passed up the chance to run. Everyone from General Colin Powell to Mike Bloomberg to New York Governor Mario Cuomo, who came so close to running he had an airplane waiting on the tarmac to take him to New Hampshire when he finally decided no. So, why did I do it? I did it because when you clear away all the petty and not-so-petty reasons not to run, all the headaches, all the obstacles, what was left was something too important to pass up. It was a chance to do the most good I would ever be able to do. In just one day at the White House, you can get more done for more people than in months anywhere else. We had to build an economy that worked for everyone and an inclusive society that respected everyone. We had to take on serious national security threats. There were issues already on my mind all the time, and they would all require a strong, qualified president. I knew I would make the most of every minute. Once I started thinking about it that way, I couldn't stop. As it happened, the person who gave me the chance to serve as Secretary of State would once again play a decisive role. A month after I left the State Department in 2013, Barack and Michelle invited Bill and me to join them for a private dinner in the White House residence. The four of us talked about our kids and the experience of raising them in the fishbowl of the White House. We discussed life after the Oval Office. Barack and Michelle mused about maybe one day moving to New York, just as we had done. That prospect still felt very far away. We all had high hopes for Barack's second term. There was a lot of unfinished business, both at home and around the world. We ended up staying for hours, talking late into the night. If, back in the heated days of 2008, any of us could have gotten a glimpse of that evening, we wouldn't have believed it. Over the next year or so, the president and I kept in regular touch. He invited me back for lunch that summer, and the two of us sat out on the terrace outside the Oval Office eating jambalaya. I think he was just a tiny bit jealous of my newfound freedom, which was a good reminder of how all-consuming the job is. We had lunch again the following spring. Some of the time, the president and I talked about work, especially the foreign policy challenges he was facing in the second term. But gradually, as 2013 turned into 2014, our conversations turned more frequently to politics. President Obama knew the challenges facing Democrats, 
He never took his reelection for granted, and while it was a resounding win in 2012, the legitimately resounding kind, he knew that his legacy depended to a large degree on a Democratic victory in 2016. He made it clear that he believed that I was our party's best chance to hold the White House and keep our progress going, and he wanted me to move quickly to prepare to run. I knew President Obama thought the world of his vice president, Joe Biden, and was close to some other potential candidates, so his vote of confidence meant a great deal to me. We had our differences in both style and substance, but overwhelmingly, we shared the same values and policy goals. We both saw ourselves as pragmatic progressives trying to move the country forward in the face of implacable opposition from a Republican Party that had been taken over by the radical conservative Tea Party fringe and was in thrall to its billionaire backers. I shared the president's sense of urgency about how much was at stake in 2016, but I still wasn't entirely sold that running was the right decision for me. As I had found when he insisted that I become Secretary of State and literally wouldn't take no for an answer, President Obama is a persuasive and persistent advocate. In the summer of 2013, David Pluff, Obama's former campaign manager who engineered my defeat in 2008, offered to provide any help and advice he could as I planned my next steps after leaving the State Department. I invited him over to my house in Washington and quickly saw why the president had leaned on him so much. He really knew his stuff. We met again in September 2014 when he visited my house once more to give me a presentation about what it would take to build a winning presidential campaign. He spoke in detail about strategy, data, personnel, and timing. I listened carefully, determined that if I did jump into the race, I would avoid the mistakes that had dogged me the last time. Pluff emphasized that time was of the essence, as hard as that was to believe, more than two years before the election. In fact, he said I was late already and urged me to get started. He was right. For me, political campaigns have always been something to get through in order to be able to govern, which is the real prize. I'm not the most natural politician. I'm a lot better than I'm usually given credit for, but it's true that I've always been more comfortable talking about others rather than myself. That made me an effective political spouse, surrogate, and office holder, but I had to adjust when I became a candidate myself. At the beginning, I had to actively try to use the word I more. Luckily, I love meeting people, listening, learning, building relationships, working on policy, and trying to help solve problems. I would have loved to meet all 320 million Americans one at a time. But that's not how campaigns work. In the end, I came back to the part that's most important to me. We Methodists are taught to do all the good you can. I knew that if I ran and won, I could do a world of good and help an awful lot of people. Does that make me ambitious? I guess it does but not in the sinister way that people often mean it. I did not want to be president because I want power for power's sake. I wanted power to do what I could to help solve problems and prepare the country for the future. It's audacious for anyone to believe he or she should be president, but I did. 
I started calling policy experts, reading thick binders of memos, and making lists of problems that needed more thought. I got excited thinking about all the ways we could make the economy stronger and fairer, improve health care and expand coverage, make college more affordable and job training programs more effective, and tackle big challenges such as climate change and terrorism. It was honestly a lot of fun. I talked with John Podesta, a longtime friend who had been Bill's chief of staff in the White House and was also a top advisor to President Obama. If I was going to do this again, I would need John's help. He promised that if I ran, he'd leave the White House and become chairman of my campaign. He thought we could put together a fantastic team very quickly. An energetic grassroots group called Ready for Hillary was already drumming up support. All of that was very reassuring. I thought back to what made me run for Senate the first time. It was the late 1990s, and Democrats in New York were urging me to run, but I kept turning them down. No first lady had ever done anything like that before, and I hadn't run for office since I'd been student government president at Wellesley College. One day, I visited a school in New York with the tennis star Billie Jean King for an event promoting an HBO special about women in sports. Hanging above our heads was a big banner proclaiming the title of the film, Dare to Compete. Before my speech, the 17-year-old captain of the high school basketball team introduced me. Her name was Sophia Tati. As we shook hands, she bent down and whispered in my ear, Dare to compete, Mrs. Clinton, dare to compete. Something just clicked. For years, I had been telling young women to step up, participate, go for what you believe in. How could I not be willing to do the same? Fifteen years later, I was asking myself the same question. There wasn't one dramatic moment when I declared, I'm doing it. Bill and I closed out 2014 with a trip to the beautiful home of our friends, Oscar and Annette de la Renta, in the Dominican Republic. We swam, ate good food, played cards, and thought about the future. By the time we got back, I was ready to run. The most compelling argument is the hardest to say out loud. I was convinced that both Bill and Barack were right when they said I would be a better president than anyone else out there. I also thought I'd win. I knew that Republicans had moved much further from the vital center of American politics than Democrats had, as nonpartisan political scientists have documented. But I still believed that the United States was a pretty sensible country. Previous generations faced much worse crises than anything we've seen, from the Civil War to the Great Depression, from World War II to the Cold War, and they responded by electing wise and talented leaders. Only rarely have Americans got carried away by extremes or enthralled by ideology, and never for long. Both major political parties, despite the madness of their respective nominating processes, nearly always manage to weed out the most extreme candidates. Before 2016, we'd never elected a president who flagrantly refused to abide by the basic standards of democracy and decency— if I was the best qualified candidate, had good ideas about the future, held my own on the trail and in the debates, and demonstrated a capacity to get things done with both Republicans and Democrats, it was reasonable to believe 
I could get elected and be able to govern effectively. That's why I ran. There are things I regret about the 2016 campaign, but the decision to run isn't one of them. I started this chapter with some lines from T.S. Eliot's poem, East Coker, that I've always loved. There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again, and now under conditions that seem unpropitious. But perhaps neither gain nor loss. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. When I first read that, as a teenager in Park Ridge, Illinois, it struck a chord somewhere deep inside, maybe in that place where dim ancestral memories of indomitable Welsh and English coal miners hid alongside half-understood stories from my mother's childhood of privation and abandonment. There is only the trying. I went back to that poem a few years later in 1969 when my classmates at Wellesley asked me to speak at our graduation. Many of us were feeling dismayed and disillusioned by the Vietnam War and the racial injustice in America, the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, and our seeming inability to change our country's course. My paraphrasing gave Eliot's elegant English verse a Midwestern makeover. There's only the trying, I told my classmates, again and again and again, to win again what we've lost before. In the nearly 50 years since, it's become a mantra for me and our family that win or lose, it's important to get caught trying. Whether you're trying to win an election or pass a piece of legislation that will help millions of people, build a friendship or save a marriage, you're never guaranteed success, but you are bound to try again and again and again. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I live. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch which I have got hold of for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. George Bernard Shaw Getting Started you could say my campaign for president began with a snappy internet video filmed in April 2015 outside my home in Chappaqua. Or you could point to my formal announcement speech that June on Roosevelt Island in New York. But I think it started with something a lot more ordinary, a Chipotle burrito bowl. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, you probably don't spend much time in the carnival funhouse of cable and internet news. It was April 13, 2015, in Maumee, Ohio. Chipotle was a pit stop on my road trip from New York to Iowa, home of the First in the Nation Caucus. It was a purposefully low-key trip. No press, no crowds, just me, a few staff, and Secret Service agents. We bundled into an oversized black van I call Scooby because it reminds me of the Scooby-Doo mystery machine. Our van has less shaggy, psychedelic charm, but we love it just the same, and set out on our thousand-mile journey. 
I had a stack of memos to read and a long list of calls to make. I had also Googled every NPR station from Westchester to Des Moines, all set for a long drive. In Maumee, we pulled into the parking lot of a strip mall off the highway for lunch. I ordered a chicken burrito bowl with a side of guacamole. Nick Merrill, my traveling press secretary, made fun of me for eating it out of the little cup with a spoon bypassing the chips. Nobody in the restaurant thought it was remarkable that I was there. In fact, nobody recognized me. Bliss. But when members of the press found out they reacted like a UFO had landed in Ohio and an extraterrestrial had wandered into a Chipotle. CNN ran grainy footage from the restaurant's security camera, which made it look a little like we were robbing a bank. The New York Times did an analysis that concluded my meal was healthier than the average Chipotle order, with fewer calories, saturated fat, and sodium. Good get for the Times. They really ate CNN's lunch on that one. The whole thing felt silly. To paraphrase an old saying, sometimes a burrito bowl is just a burrito bowl. Soon I was back in Iowa, the state that handed me a humbling third-place finish in 2008. Like the road trip, I wanted this first visit to be no frills. I would do more listening than talking, just as I had at the start of my first Senate campaign in New York. My new state director, Matt Paul, who knew Iowa inside and out after years of working for Governor Tom Vilsack and Senator Tom Harkin, agreed. Iowans wanted to get to know their candidates, not just listen to them give speeches. That's exactly what I wanted, too. When Donald Trump started his campaign, he seemed confident that he already had all the answers. He had no ideological core, apart from his towering self-regard, which blotted out all hope of learning or growing. As a result, he had no need to listen to anyone but himself. I approached things differently. After four years traveling the world as Secretary of State, I wanted to reconnect with the problems that were keeping American families up at night and hear directly about their hopes for the future. I had a core set of ideas and principles, but wanted to hear from voters to inform new plans to match what was really going on in their lives and the country. One of the first people I met in New Hampshire, another early contest state, provided a case in point. Pam was a grandmother in her 50s with gray hair and the air of someone who carries a lot of responsibility on her shoulders. She was an employee of a 111-year-old family-run furniture business I visited in Keene. We were talking about how to help small businesses grow, but Pam had a different challenge on her mind. Her daughter had gotten hooked on pain medication after giving birth to a baby boy, which led to a long struggle with drug addiction. Eventually, Child and Family Services started calling Pam, warning that her grandson could end up in foster care. So she and her husband, John, took the child in, and Pam found herself back in the role of primary caretaker she thought she had finished years before. Pam wasn't the complaining type. This was a labor of love, and she was glad to pick up the slack, especially now that her daughter was in treatment. But she was worried. A lot of families in town were facing similar struggles. In New Hampshire, more people were dying from drug overdoses than from car crashes. The number of people seeking treatment for heroin addiction had soared 90% over the past decade. For prescription drugs, 
the number was up 500%. I knew a little about this. At the time, Bill and I were friends with three families who had lost young adult children to opioids. Sadly, that number has now grown to five. One was a charismatic young man who worked at the State Department while he was in law school. A friend of his offered some pills. He took them, went to sleep that night, and never woke up. Others took drugs after drinking, and their hearts stopped. After these tragedies, the Clinton Foundation partnered with Adapt Pharma to make available free doses of the opioid antidote naloxone, Narcan, which can save lives by helping prevent overdoses to every high school and college in the United States. On that first visit to New Hampshire in a coffee shop in downtown Keene, a retired doctor leaned in and asked, What can you do about the opioid and heroin epidemic? It was chilling to hear that word epidemic, but it was the right one. In 2015, more than 33,000 people died from overdosing on opioids. If you add to that the number from 2014, it's more Americans than were killed in the entire Vietnam War. Resources for treatment couldn't come close to keeping up. Parents liquidated their savings to pay for their kids' treatment. Some called the police about their own children because they had tried everything else. Yet despite all this, substance abuse wasn't getting much national attention either in Washington or in the national media. I didn't think about it as a campaign issue until I started hearing stories like Pam's in Iowa and New Hampshire. I called my policy team together and told them we had to get working right away on a strategy. My advisors fanned out. We held town hall meetings and heard more stories. In one session in New Hampshire, a substance abuse counselor asked anyone who had been impacted by the epidemic to raise his or her hand. Nearly every hand in the room went up. A woman in treatment told me, We're not bad people trying to get good. We're sick people trying to get well. To help her and millions of others do that, we came up with a plan to expand access to treatment, improve training for doctors and pharmacists prescribing prescription drugs, reform the criminal justice system so more nonviolent drug offenders end up in rehab instead of prison, and make sure every first responder in America carries naloxone, which is close to a miracle drug. This became a model for how my campaign operated in those early months. People told me story after story about the challenges their families faced, student debt, the high cost of prescription drugs and insurance premiums, and wages too low to support a middle-class life. I'd use those conversations to guide the policies already being hammered out back in our Brooklyn headquarters. I wanted my policy shop to be bold, innovative, industrious, and most importantly, responsive to people's real-life needs. Jake Sullivan, my director of policy planning at the State Department, Ann O'Leary, a longtime advisor of mine who shared my passion for children and health care policy, and Maya Harris, a veteran civil rights advocate, built and led a great team. You can compare this to how Trump operated. When the opioid epidemic finally started getting news attention, he jumped on it as a way of making people believe that America was falling apart. 
But once he became president, he turned his back on everyone who needed help by seeking to cut money for treatment. The press often seemed bored by the roundtables where these conversations happened. Critics dismissed them as staged or carefully controlled. But I wasn't bored. I wanted to talk with people, not at them. I also learned a lot. To me, this was a big part of what running for president was supposed to be. Over the long months that I had weighed running a second time, I thought a lot about what kind of campaign I'd want. I certainly wanted one different from the one I ran during my 2008 primary loss to Barack Obama. I studied what he did right and I did wrong. There was more to learn after 2012, when the president put together another strong campaign that helped him win re-election over Mitt Romney by a healthy margin despite a lackluster economy. His operations were two of the best ever. I paid attention. My low-profile first trip to Iowa reflected some of the lessons that I kept in mind as I started to put my own organization in place. In 2008, I had been criticized for arriving in Iowa like a queen, holding big rallies and acting like victory was inevitable. I never thought that was a fair description of me or our campaign. We believed I could prevail in a crowded and talented field, but we certainly didn't take Iowa for granted. In fact, we recognized that it wasn't an ideal first contest for me and spent a fair amount of 2007 trying to figure out how to make the best of it. Still, the criticism stuck, and I took it seriously. This time, I was determined to run like an underdog and avoid any whiff of entitlement. I also wanted to build on the best parts of my 2008 effort, especially the fighting spirit of our campaigns in Ohio and Pennsylvania, where I succeeded in forming a bond with working-class voters who felt invisible in George W. Bush's America. I had dedicated my victory in the Ohio primary to everyone who's ever been counted out but refused to be knocked out, for everyone who has stumbled but stood right back up, and for everyone who works hard and never gives up. I wanted to bring that spirit to the 2016 campaign, along with the best lessons of Obama's victories. We sought to set the right tone with my announcement video. It showed a series of Americans talking excitedly about new challenges they were taking on. Two brothers starting a small business, a mom getting her daughter ready for the first day of kindergarten, a college student applying for her first job, a couple getting married. Then I appeared briefly to say that I was running for president to help Americans get ahead and stay ahead, and that I was going to work hard to earn every vote. This campaign wasn't going to be about me and my ambitions. It would be about you and yours. There were other lessons to put into action. In 2008, the Obama campaign had been way ahead of us in using advanced data analytics to model the electorate, target voters, and test messages. It focused relentlessly on grassroots organizing and winning the delegates who would actually decide the nomination. It also built a no-drama campaign organization that largely avoided damaging infighting and leaks. John Podesta and I talked with President Obama and David Pluff about how to construct a team that could replicate these successes. Pluff was a big fan of Robbie Mook, whom I ultimately chose as campaign manager. Robbie had impressed David by helping me win against the odds and against him, 
in Nevada, Ohio, and Indiana in 2008. In all three states, he put together aggressive field programs and competed hard for every vote. Then he went on to manage my friend Terry McAuliffe's successful long-shot campaign for governor of Virginia. Robbie was on a roll. Young but, like Pluff, highly disciplined and level-headed, with a passion for data and a talent for organizing. Kuma Abedin, my trusted and valued advisor for years, would be campaign vice chair. President Obama praised his pollsters, Joel Benenson and John Anzalone, and focus group expert David Binder, so I hired all three, as well as a veteran of the Obama data analytics team, Elon Kriegel. Naveen Nayak came on board to coordinate all these different elements of opinion research. Here's how to keep it all straight. Pollsters call up a random sample of people and ask their opinions about candidates and issues. Focus groups gather a handful of people together in a room for an in-depth discussion that can last several hours. And data analytics teams make a lot of survey calls, crunch huge amounts of additional demographic, consumer, and polling data, and feed it all into complex models that try to predict how people will vote. These are all staples of modern campaigns. To help guide messaging and create ads, I hired Jim Margolis, a respected Obama veteran, and Mandy Grunwald, who had been with me and Bill since our first national campaign in 1992. They worked with Orrin Shure, my director of paid media, and several talented and creative ad agencies. I thought Jim's and Mandy's partnership would represent the best of both worlds. That's what I was going for with all my hiring decisions. Mix the best available talent from the Obama campaigns with top-notch pros I knew already. The latter category included Dennis Chang, who had raised hundreds of millions of dollars for my 2006 Senate re-election campaign and 2008 presidential campaign, and later helped build up the Clinton Foundation endowment. Minyan Moore, one of the most experienced political operatives in Democratic politics and a veteran of my husband's White House. And Jose Villarreal, a business leader who had worked with me at State and came on board to serve as my campaign treasurer. As I built my team, I was focused on two tricky areas, how to strike the right balance with President Obama and his White House, and, drumroll for emphasis, how to improve my relationship with the press. The challenge of striking a balance with President Obama wasn't personal, after all. After four years in his cabinet, we liked and trusted each other. There aren't many people in the world who know what it's like to run for president or live in the White House, but we had that in common, and it gave us a special bond. When he finally passed health care reform, something I had fought for long and hard, I was overjoyed and gave him a big hug before a meeting in the White House Situation Room. After his rough first presidential debate with Mitt Romney in 2012, I tried to cheer him up with a photoshopped image of Big Bird strapped to Mitt's family car. Romney had promised to slash funding for PBS and also famously took road trips with his dog on the roof of his car. Please take a look at the image below, smile, and then keep that smile near at hand, I told the president. We'll get this done, he replied. Just hold the world together five more weeks for me. Now that we had switched places and I was the candidate and he was the cheerleader, the challenge for me was navigating the tension between continuity and change. On the one hand, I believed deeply in what he had accomplished as president, 
and desperately wanted to make sure a Republican wouldn't be able to undo it all. We might have areas of disagreement, such as on Syria, trade, and how to deal with an aggressive Russia, but by and large, I would defend his record, try to build on his accomplishments, and listen to his advice. He would call from time to time and share his thoughts on the race. Don't try to be hip. You're a grandma, he'd tease. Just be yourself and keep doing what you're doing. I was proud to have Barack's support and nearly every day told audiences around the country that he didn't get the credit he deserved for putting our country back together after the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. At the same time, there were big problems that still needed fixing in America, and part of my job as candidate was to make it clear that I saw them and was ready to take them on. Inevitably, that meant pointing out areas where the Obama administration's efforts had fallen short, even if the main culprit was Republican obstruction. It was a fine line to walk, as it would have been for Vice President Biden or anyone who had served in the Obama administration. If I failed to strike the right balance, I ran the risk of either seeming disloyal or being cast as the candidate of the status quo, both of which would be damaging. In one of the first meetings of our new team in a conference room on the 29th floor of a midtown Manhattan office building, Joel Benenson presented the results of his early opinion research. He said Americans had two main pain points that would likely shape their views of the election— economic pressure, and political gridlock. The economy was definitely in better shape than it had been after the financial crisis, but incomes hadn't begun to rise for most families, so people still felt like their progress was fragile and could be ripped away at any moment. And they had come to view dysfunction in Washington as a big part of the problem. They were right. I had seen that dysfunction firsthand and knew how hard it would be to break through it, although I think it's fair to say I underestimated how my opponents would wrongly accuse me of being responsible for a broken system. I had a record of success working with Republicans over the years. I had plans for aggressive campaign finance reform, which would remove some of the profit motive behind the gridlock, and I believed we had a strong shot at making progress. The problem remained how to find a compelling way to talk about the pain Americans felt and their dissatisfaction with how things were going in the country without reinforcing Republican criticisms of the Obama administration, which would be self-defeating and just plain wrong. Joel said I was starting from a strong place. Fifty-five percent of voters in the battleground states had a favorable view of me, compared with just 41 percent with an unfavorable view. Voters liked that I had worked for Obama after losing to him in 2008, they also thought it showed loyalty and patriotism. They thought I had done a good job as Secretary of State and most believed I was ready to be president. But even though I'd been in the public eye for decades, they knew little about what I had actually done, much less why I had done it. This presented both a challenge and an opportunity. Despite having near-universal name recognition, I would have to reintroduce myself, not as an extension of Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, but as an independent leader with my own story, values, and vision. There were also some warning signs to worry about. While my approval ratings were high, just 44% of voters said they trusted me to be their voice in Washington. That told us that some people respected me but weren't sure I was in it for them. I was determined to change that perception. 
The reason I had gotten into public service was to make life better for children and families, and now it was my job to make sure people understood that. There was something else we needed to do. Avoid repeating past problems with the political press corps. Over the years, my relationship with the political press had become a vicious cycle. The more they went after me, the more guarded I became, which only made them criticize me more. I knew that if I wanted 2016 to be different, I was going to have to try to change the dynamic and establish a more open and constructive give-and-take. There was some precedent. As a senator, I got along surprisingly well with the rough-and-tumble journalists of New York, and I grew downright fond of the State Department press corps, which consisted largely of journalists who had written about foreign policy for years. We talked easily, went out together on the road, toured Angkor Wat in Cambodia, dined in a Bedouin tent in Saudi Arabia, danced in South Africa, and had adventures all over the globe. For the most part, they covered me fairly, and when I felt they didn't, they were open to my criticism. Now I would try to establish a similar rapport with the political reporters covering the campaign. I knew they were under constant pressure to write stories that would drive clicks and retweets, and that negative stories sell. So I was skeptical, but it was worth a shot. To help me do it, I hired Jennifer Palmieri, a savvy professional with strong press relationships. Jennifer had worked for John Podesta in the Clinton White House and at the Democratic think tank, the Center for American Progress. Most recently, she had been President Obama's communications director in the White House. The president loved Jennifer, and so did I. I asked Christina Shockey, a former top aide to Michelle Obama, and later Christina Reynolds, who had worked on the John Edwards and Obama campaigns, to be her deputies. They were joined by National Press Secretary Brian Fallon, a graduate of the acclaimed Chuck Schumer School of Communications and a former spokesman for the Department of Justice, and Karen Finney, the former MSNBC host who had first worked for me in the White House. When Jennifer, Christine, and I sat down together for the first time, I let two decades' worth of frustrations with the press pour out. Buckle up, I said, this is going to be a rough ride, but I was ready to try whatever they recommended to get off on a better foot this time. With my senior team coming together, we got to work building an organization that could go the distance. Presidential campaigns are like startups on steroids. You have to raise an enormous amount of money very quickly, hire a huge staff, deploy them across the country, and build a sophisticated data operation largely from scratch. As a candidate, you have to manage all that while maintaining a grueling campaign schedule that keeps you hundreds or thousands of miles from headquarters nearly every day.